Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. If you'd open up your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 4 this week, beginning with verse... beginning this week with verse 14. As we continue to go through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14. I want to say this morning how thankful I am that after many, many years of disobeying God in the matter of how long I preach, that God has been able, not able, but God has been kind and has helped me to begin to preach the amount of time I should preach instead of what I want to preach. And so I want to say to all of you that that's God's kindness to me, and I'm very happy about it. I'm glad that uh, at this point in my life, that's a matter of a pretty clean conscience, and I'd ask you to continue to pray that that will be true of me, that I will be faithful in how long I preach. (laughs) Isn't that weird? That's something most of you don't have to worry about, is how long you preach, you know? (laughs) Although I suppose there are some wives that have to worry about that. (laughs) Okay, all right. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable. In thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now again, the constant opposition pointed out by the Apostle Paul between the law and faith, between works and grace, between man's righteousness and the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Okay? This is what the Apostle Paul is doing constantly is condemning, rejecting, warning about this, and encouraging, holding out, and teaching this. We are not saved by works of the law. We are saved by grace through faith. You cannot have synergy in salvation. You can't have a step forward by man met by a helping hand by God. 
Because what would a man stepping forward be other than keeping God's law, and what man has ever kept God's law? There is none righteous, not one. And so take your pick. Which will it be for you? Will it be the law, or will it be grace through faith? This is the question the Apostle Paul is putting to us constantly as we go through the book of Romans. If you respond that you'll put your trust in works of keeping the law, then you must realize that you have set yourself up as an enemy of the promises of God, because God's promises are nullified by the man who trusts in the law. It says in verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Now here you have to keep track of what of the law means, for if those who are of the law. Here it refers to those who trust in keeping God's law for their salvation. I'm of the law. You're of grace, I'm of the law. Okay, of the law refers to those who trust in their law-abiding, their law-keeping, their own morality for salvation, to stand before God. If those who are of the law, who trust in the law to save them, are heirs. Now, what is an heir? An heir is someone who inherits something from another person, and usually it's a father. And so the word heir carries with it connotation or a secondary meaning of sonship. And so the Apostle Paul is saying that if the people of God were given the law and trust in that law to make them a son of Abraham, able to inherit God's promise of salvation that he gave to Abraham, if they are the ones who are saved, those who inherit the law from, inherit, from Abraham, who are in the lineage of the Jews, if they're the ones that are saved, he says, then what? Well, the negative consequences are faith is made void Faith is made nothing. Faith is rendered meaningless. And then second, the second consequence is that the promise is nullified. Faith is made void. The promise is nullified. The promise is deleted. If Almighty God saves a man as a wage that's due him for keeping the Torah, which was what the Jews believed at the time, it's what the rabbis taught. And Paul knew that it was what the rabbis taught because Paul was a student of the rabbis. And so the normal Christian teaching was that those who were Jews had the Torah and were saved by keeping the Torah, and that this was what it meant for Abraham to be their father. The Apostle Paul says, if so, then both faith and God's promise are contradicted, and they're rendered absolutely meaningless. For one thing, how can the law save a man when the Mosaic, which is to say the Jewish law, was not given to Abraham or during the time of Abraham? It was given 430 years later. This is what the Apostle Paul goes into in Galatians 3. It could have been in mind here. In other words, we have a chronology problem, you know. 430 years later, that's when God revealed his law to the Israelites. Faith in ourselves, faith in our works, our righteousness, our keeping the law, is no faith at all. Trust in ourselves, in our works and righteousness, keeping the law, 
is the opposite of looking to God, to his promises for our salvation. Okay, so again, it's either man or God. It's either man or God. It's either man or God. It can never be both. Either we look to God by faith and his promises and we are saved or we look to ourselves and we are without hope eternally. One or the other, which is it for you? Are you the man who rejects faith in God, who turns away from God's promise of redemption? Instead, are you preferring to trust yourself? Are you trusting in your pride and your works and you're being the, key, the perfect keeper of what is moral, what is right? Your superiority to your wife, to your husband, to your friends, to other people in church, to people at work, your superiority because you are the one that really keeps track of what's right and wrong. Is this your faith, your hope? Seriously. If so, then you choose yourself over God. You are depending on yourself instead of the maker of the universe and the father of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our only Lord, Jesus Christ. And so, okay, I wanted to write down here in the manuscript, but I thought it was too trivial, but I think I'll say it anyhow. Knock yourself out. Go ahead, knock yourself out. You trust in who you want to trust in. Fight with God. Go ahead, make faith void and nullify God's promise. Knock yourself out. Now, what is the promise that the Lord says is nullified through his servant, the Apostle Paul here? What is this promise? Well, the word promise here occurs for the first time in the book of Romans. But once it appears, it returns quickly. Just in this short section, promise is mentioned four times as a noun, once as a verb. I think it's 12 times in the book of Romans. Each of the occurrences is referring to God making the promise, a promise to Abraham. There are several different kinds of promises he makes to Abraham, and we must distinguish between the different promises. But in this particular case, where the Apostle Paul warns that trusting in works of the law nullifies God's promise, he is speaking of God's promise to Abraham that he, Abraham, would father many nations. I've referred to this a number of times, where God takes him out under the Milky Way. It's so bright. It's, it's, like, it's like milk spread across the sky when there isn't light pollution. And God says, okay, count up the number of stars there. So shall your descendants be. That's the promise. And so we're talking about Abraham having numberless, countless numbers of descendants. And here again, we return to this promise made by God out under the stars. This promise of God is that Abraham will have so much seed, so many descendants, that their number will be impossible to count. God promises Abraham that he will be the source, the man through whom God blesses all the peoples of the earth, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. 
Again, look at verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. In other words, those who are of the Mosaic law, those who are in direct blood descent from Father Abraham, the law that was given to them as Jews, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified, for the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. Now, what does it mean when it says the law brings about wrath? Well, you know, there's no, there's no wrath from your mother if you take cookies and she hasn't told you not to. But once your mother has told you no cookies <laughs> and you take them, guess what? There's wrath. Do you understand this? We are, by nature, we're sinners. We're depraved. And when we're told no, we do it because that's who we are. And so the law makes sin increase. When the Jews were given God's law, immediately, I mean, think about it, immediately, right? Down there at the bottom of the mountain, what are they doing? We don't want to talk about it, really, because parts of it shouldn't be talked about. We let them talk about it over in St. Louis, right? At Revoice. There was real sin going on down there, and it wasn't just the shaping of the golden calf. God is giving the law to his people, and they're having an absolute muck. It's just muck at the bottom of the mountain. And so immediately when the water is given, what happens? You remember what God does? God tells Moses, and what? The Ten Commandments, remember? They're smashed. Moses makes them grind it up, that idol, into, into powder dust. He puts it in the creek, and then he makes them drink it. This is wrath. Can you imagine how furious Moses was? And then God is about to consume the nation. Okay, so the law increases wrath. All right? The law brings about wrath. We'll go into this more later in the book when we get to the place where it says that uh, sin increases. You remember that phrase later? And then it says, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. Now, you know that I listen to the book of Romans when I cut grass. Every time I hear this, I always think to myself, I don't think that's wrong, but I wonder what it means because it seems wrong. You know, it seems like it's saying where there is no law, then we have perfection, right? Where there is no law, we have no sin. Where there is no law, we have no guilt. And so I'm so thankful I'm going through the book of Romans and preaching because it allows me to clear up my stupidity. And there's such a simple, simple solution for this, which is that where this law of Moses that God gave to his people does not exist, there is no violation of this law that God gave to Moses. All right? Why do we know that? Well, because the word used is violation. And when you speed, you go 60 to 55, you get a traffic citation for violating the traffic laws. 
In other words, violation points to a specific command or a specific prohibition. You violated the parking laws, and so you get a parking citation, all right? Violation is not a general, cosmic sort of guilt in sin. Violation is when you know a law and you don't keep it. All right? And so what it's saying here is when there is no law, there is no violation. There also is no violation. This last week I had an experience of this driving to Spencer. I was going out to the trailer business out there to get something done, and, and I knew that it was going to close at 5, and I didn't want to inconvenience them by getting there right at 5. And so I left at about 4.15. I said to Mike, who drives that a lot, I said, hey, Mike, when do you think I'm going to get there? And he says, he says well, the way you drive, 35 minutes, or 25, which was it? can't remember, 25 or 35. So I get out right past McCormick's Creek, and all of a sudden it's stop-and-go traffic. And I'm thinking, are you serious? And then something in the back of my mind reminds me that I saw in the news online that there was going to be something going on in Spencer with the roads, right? And I think, oh, no. <clears throat> and I mean, I don't know how long. I'm going to guess it took me 15 minutes to, to get just across the river, you know? It was horrible. And so I call the trailer place. Listen, I think I'm going to get there exactly at five minutes too. Remember, I called, and these are the things I need to buy. And so if you go ahead and pick them now and have them ready, then I won't keep you past when you, when you have to close. But I'm coming, right? Real, real nice people there. And so I, finally I begin to come into town, and, and I remember, you know, there is a road that you can turn left on right as you come into town, and, and that road goes around behind, and it will just, it will go past the whole downtown. You can go the whole way through town on that road. All these other people are in this line, but I'm going to beat them. And I have a trailer behind my truck. And so I turn at the intersection, and it's clear the whole way down a block, and I turn again, and all of a sudden, something's going wrong, because there, there are all these people coming at me in the middle of the road. And it's like, dude, move over. I have a trailer. This is a small road. We, come on, move over, over. But they keep coming at me down the middle of the road, right? And I cannot, for the life of me, figure it out. And so after a couple blocks of this, and, you know, some of them honk at me and give me frowns or something, you know, and I don't know what's going on. And so finally I have to stop because there's this car that is in the middle of the road, and I have a trailer, and I stop right next to this guy on a motorcycle, and I, 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 I move my window down and I say, oh, no, it was already down. And I said, what's going on? I said... I don't remember what I said. Something, something's wrong. What am I doing wrong? I think that's what I said. What am I doing wrong? And he said, this is a one-way road. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, they've made it one way for the construction. 
Well, then it all began to make sense why everybody was honking at me and wouldn't move over, you know. But I'd gotten quite a bit of the way, you know. So I looked down, and of course, there's a barrier, and you can't turn right and go back onto the road because they have it blocked off for, you know, people like me, you know. And so I looked at him, I said, I don't know, what, what should I do? He said, well, you turn around. And he said, you, you can go with us the whole way back to the road and then get back on where you were. And so why was there wrath? Why did wrath increase? <laughs> you know, I, I had not violated anything, you know. I was violating the traffic law and wrath increased. But where there is no violation the wrath doesn't increase. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to go into, um, we're going to go into this a little bit deeper about the law was given that sins may increase. I want you, though, to see in your heart that the minute you're told no, you want to do it. That's what I want you to get from this. That wrath and sin increase when the law is given. And why is that? Well, the reason is that you and I have been corrupted by original sin, and it is our, our natural propensity since the fall is to violate any law we are given. That is what is natural to man now. The most famous example of this being explained by a church father is Augustine in the Confessions, where he talks about the pear tree. We'll get into that later, but he talks about how he and the young boys were playing in the streets, and then they saw this pear tree of a neighbor, and they were forbidden the pears because pears were very, very uh, great delicacies at the time. And so whoever owned the pear tree had the right to pick the pears. In Indiana, if that pear tree has one small branch that goes across the property line, in Indiana, the law specifically says you may pick the pears that hang on your property. I just wanted you all to know that in case you have a pear tree, all right? And if the partridge is there on the pear tree, <laughs> okay, I'm back. And so Augustine and his friends had their attention drawn to the pear tree, and what did they do? They went and they stripped the pear tree. They stripped it, like a raccoon did to my peach tree this year. They stripped it. Now, here's the interesting thing. Why did they do that? This is what's fascinating about it. What did they do with the pears? Anybody other than Andrew Henry know? Do you know, Clinton? Okay, but... That's not good enough. You should know where they threw them. Come on. Come on. That's right. They threw them to the pigs. Isn't that fascinating? They didn't eat them, but they gave them to the pigs. Now, why would a man do that? Why would a boy do that? Well, we all know why he would pick the pears, because they're not his. 
So you pick the pears because they're not yours and you're not supposed to pick the pears. Why would you throw them to the pigs instead of eating them, taking them home? Well, it may be because you didn't want your mother to know what you did, but still you'd eat a good bunch of them, you know. Augustine then says that the reason they did it, and I'll read this later when we come to the other section in Romans, the reason he did it is that he was embracing and making a principle out of what? It's a particular word that begins with an S. He was making a principle out of his shame. He was embracing his shame, making a principle out of it. Now that's interesting, isn't it? You know that that's what our entire world does today, especially with sexual sin. When we commit sexual sin, we make a principle out of it. That's what Revoice did. Revoice knows absolutely the condemnation of God on effeminacy, on giving yourself to an identity that is contrary to what he made you as a man or a woman. And so they have a conference, a bunch of Christians that get together and make a principle out of their shame. The things that they should not, admit, not be wanting to speak of publicly, the things that should embarrass them. Like Augustine with the stripping of those pears and the feeding them to the pigs. You make a principle, and all of us do this. You think about your wife. You know, to me, the easiest knockoff example that I can give you, which will keep you from maybe hating me too much, but it's the example of when I used to drink more than one cup of coffee during the day. And I'd come home at the end of the day, and I was hangry. I hadn't eaten all day, and I'd had too much coffee, and I'd sit at the table, and immediately I would be on edge, and I'd be like, and my wife would then say to me, "Uh, you drank another cup of coffee today, didn't you? And man, would that make me angry. You know? And so what would I do? Well, I'd double down on the principle. How do you double down on principles? Well, you take what is your failure and you try to make it into something that's moral. Right? Does that make sense? And so I'd say, no, no. If you're going to set the table, make sure the salt and pepper are on. You had two cups of coffee today, didn't you? Taylor, eat with your mouth shut. You know? Did you finish cutting the grass today, Joseph? And, and, and the, print, the whole thing is that I'm hangry, right? And that I've had more coffee than I should have, right? Well, this is what we always do. We always make a principle out of our sin. We refuse to admit our shame, and we double down on it. And man, in marriage, that's one of the most common uh, reasons for fighting in marriage. And so what we see lived out is exactly what the Apostle Paul says. He says, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, the promise nullified, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. And so Gentiles didn't have the law, and so they didn't violate the law. Does that mean that they were without sin and guilt? No, absolutely not. How do we know that? Well, because in Romans chapter 1, where it's specifically being written to the Gentiles, the Apostle Paul describes those who have no law, no Mosaic Revelation law, he describes them this way. 
he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He's not speaking to the Jews here, he's speaking to the Gentiles. He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. They don't have the written law, but it's evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Not being understood through the Mosaic law, through the Talmud, being understood through what's made. Gentiles also are under God's law and are guilty. But they're not guilty of violations of the written law. They're guilty of the violations of the law that God has written on their hearts. There is none righteous. The Apostle Paul is parsing it between the Jews guilty of violations, okay, of the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, but that doesn't let the Gentiles off. Verse 15, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. For this reason, verse 16, it is by faith. In order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed Now, how would you read this if you were reading it out loud? Do you vary your reading to your children when you're doing devotions? You need to read in a way that shows that you understand what God is saying in the text. This is one of the first things we teach students in the pastor's college, is simply how to read in a way that helps the understanding of listeners. What men tend to do is men tend to just simply do sing-songy thing because they think of the Bible as being a rabbit's foot, you know? And so what they'll do is they'll read it like this way. For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all that is not only. This is the way we read sacred texts. But the Bible needs to be read with understanding in a way that communicates what it's saying. And so here it says, so that the promise will be guaranteed what? You should know what he's saying, so how would you read it? So that the promise will be guaranteed what? How would you read it? Come on, say it out loud. So the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Now... So the promise will be guaranteed to all, come on, say it, all the descendants. The reason I'm having you say it is that you're a Gentile, almost all of you. And so this is a precious truth to you. So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law. And when it speaks of of the law here, it's speaking of the Jews who had the Mosaic law. So the promise will be to all the descendants, not simply those who are Jews and have the Mosaic law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Who is the father of of us all.
And so who is Abraham the father of? Is he the father of the Jews only? No, he's the father of the Gentiles. Who have faith? Abraham is the father of us all. Some of us have a Jewish lineage. Most of us don't, but he's the father of us all. There there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. The Jews are God's people still to this day, but the church is the church of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul never stops fighting this battle in everything he does in the New Testament. There's always this battle over pedigree, over bloodline, descent. When I worked out um, at a very, very wealthy uh, uh, couple's home at Lobster Cove in Manchester by the sea, looking out over the ocean, up on the cliffs, one of the things they had in their home was what? They had a copy of the social register. What is the social register? It's this thick book that keeps track of who was your mama and who was your daddy. And all the pecking orders of different people of a certain breeding, namely not you, but people above you, okay? And this is what was constantly going on in the New Testament, is the Jews were constantly working, including Christian Jews, to relegate the Gentile Christians to a subordinate, secondary, uh, inferior status, okay? This is the reason for this circumcision debate. This battle never stopped. Now, I want to say something about this battle. Have you noticed, remember I told you a long time ago that the Apostle Paul was going to return to this theme again, you remember? Then the next week I said, did you notice the Apostle Paul has returned to this theme again? You remember that? And then I said the next week, you've noticed. Now, this week, do you notice he, re- he returned to the theme again? You all with me? What is the theme? Well, the theme is that no man is saved by the law. That no Jew is saved by obedience and moralism. But that everyone is saved by faith. And so the Apostle Paul never stops putting in opposition the works of the law and faith. Now, because we're so used to hearing it, Because we're so used to hearing it, we don't hear it, right? People that live in this neighborhood across the street don't hear the train anymore. This is the way scripture is to us. We don't hear the clickety-clack. We don't hear, you know, the train's horn. Now, you probably hear it during the day sometimes, but I'll bet a lot of times you don't even hear it if you live over there. I know that when we had our uh, church office right in, um, right next to uh, what, what is now the Bloomington uh, Hipster Avenue, uh, what do they call that? Rails to Trails or something. Well, it used to be a railroad, and regularly a railroad would go by. You just get so you didn't even hear the railroad go by. 
So when we see the constant opposition of works of the law and faith all through the book of Romans, we stop hearing it. Or we hear it as sort of good news for us because we do want God to save us by grace through faith. What we don't see is the conflict, and I want to be very firm about this with you this morning. In the last few weeks, a great conflict has, has, has enveloped the conservative biblical church in America over a conference called Revoice. And this conference is a, a gathering of people who call themselves LGBTQ sexual minorities, all right? And the battle has been over whether or not people should present themselves in the church and in the world as being an LGBTQ sexual minority who is a Christian, and that minority status is fine as long as you don't touch, as long as you don't touch, okay? That's the battle. And what's happened is a bunch of people in this country have been scandalized to think that homosexuality is so pervasive today that it's come into the church and that people are walking around saying to each other, I'm gay, you gay, you gay, I'm gay, we're gay, you queer, you know, you, you transsexual, I'm transsexual, you're transsexual, I'm gay, you're gay, right? And all this stuff is going on in the church and all of a sudden people who were asleep have wakened up and they're going, what? Wait a second, what? You know, this doesn't sound right, right? But here's the problem. We have been so hammered into our brains that we should never, ever, ever allow there to be division. That we should never allow there to be any condemnation of anything. That everybody just has their own position and you just give people freedom to have their own position, right? That on the one hand, we're scandalized, but on the other hand, we're just like, well, I don't want to beat up on the gaybies. You know, I mean... Who likes to say no to people that present as gay? You just don't like doing it, right? I mean, it just seems like embarrassing, you know? So on the one hand, what? On the other hand, yikes. Ain't no one but us chickens in here. And so everybody's like caught between what? And... I'm not going to say nothing. And the reason is we have lost the fact that Scripture is nothing but conflict. It's relentlessly conflict because souls are at stake. And so when you know it's wrong for somebody who claims to know Christ to present himself or herself as a gaby, a sexual minority, who lets people know about it, and is proud of their identity, their aesthetics, their effeminacy, and you shut up because you're worried about conflict, you've got to stop and ask yourself, what if the Apostle Paul had decided that he would prefer to be accepted by the Jews, and so he's not going to whoop up on them anymore? He's just going to go along to get along. He's going to make sure that his church begins to grow. He's going to make sure that his seminary continues to have lots of people enrolled and matriculating every year. I mean, you just take the book of Romans and the book of Galatians for granted. You have no 
idea how scandalous they were. You have no idea that the Apostle Paul made an intense commitment that he was going to take a meat cleaver through the church of God. And he was going to do it for the sake of the souls that were in play. And so if you like the book of Romans, because it gives you so many goodies, and I think by now we all do like the book of Romans because it does give us goodies, then you have to understand that God is pleased to use division and conflict to show who is right. It is not scandalous. When you go into the living room and your older daughter is whooping up on your little boy, you should shame her for treating her younger brother this way, and that's not an act of division in that room. That is an act of vindicating the oppressed. Okay? And so please notice the intensity of the Apostle Paul's engaging in the conflict, because that's what gave you the book of Romans. Don't be scandalized by conflict. Not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom believed, even God who what? (coughs) Who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And so here's where we end. God is a God that gives life to us. God gives life to queer. God gives life to the, to the hombre who is uh, straight as the day is long. God gives life to the moralist. That's the amazing one. God raises from the dead the Jew who keeps the Talmud. God gives life to the dead. Are you dead? Are you dead? Or, you know, like the Monty Python skit. I'm not dead yet! You know, your arms are hacked off, your legs are hacked off, maybe even your head's hacked off, and your body's running around like a dead chicken. You aren't dead yet. But the Bible tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Listen, the church is not the home of people who are well-bred with a certain lineage. And the church does not have a pecking order based on whether you have a degree or not, whether you're rich or not, whether you're articulate or not, whether you're white or not. The church does not keep track of what sins you're repenting of. You know, the one qualification for the church is that you have faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. And you know who has faith in Jesus Christ? Only the man who says, I am dead yet. I am dead in my trespasses and sins. Do you remember what God says in Psalm 51? Through his servant David, God says, a broken and a contrite spirit he will not despise. The church 
is the community of those who have broken and contrite spirits. I'm very happy for what happened to Samuel because the day or two before, I went to Samuel and I said, Samuel, I'm so proud of you. I said, Mike, Ted, you work well. And there's nothing I like better than a young man who works well. And so I'm so happy, Samuel. And then (laughs) the poor guy, you know, he's just completely wasted. And he has to be saved. And it's the most wonderful gift God could give to Samuel. And so I'm trying to build on it. I'm trying to make it real clear to everybody that Samuel is actually not a specimen. He just needs to be saved. And my favorite part of the story is actually not Jared saving Samuel and the other kids. You know what my favorite part is. Yeah, yeah, you know me. (laughs) My favorite part is Jared punching him. Why? Why do I love Jared punching him? Well, because I think it's the perfect analogy for sanctification. Having begun by faith, then immediately we want to salvage our pride, and so we try to do it on our own. And if God is kind, he disciplines us. He punches us to remind us that if we try to continue in our own strength, having begun with the Holy Spirit, he'll have no part in us. And listen, I I don't know if this is true, but I often wonder whether the sins I've committed and the sins you, you have committed are not simply God punching us back to a broken and a contrite spirit because that's what he doesn't despise. You know... What God is delighted by are people that depend on him and don't think they have anything to bring to him. Don't think synergistically, but they're humble and they want him to receive the glory. And some of you, it takes terrible sins to get you to that point. It's my privilege to hear your confession of them the elders, the pastors, the older women of this church hear the confessions. Some of you are smart, and right out of the gate, you just know that there's nothing for you but faith. We'll continue next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the knowledge of our sin. We thank you that your word each week brings us more fully aware of how hopeless we are, dead in our trespasses and sins, and how much we must cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. Father, thank you for saving the lives of these precious children. We thank you for Jared. We pray that you will make Jared into a keeper of men's souls and not simply their bodies. Father, would you please give us humility and a broken and a contrite spirit Do not despise us, Father, in our weakness, but be tender with us as a father is with his children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.